Hello and welcome to the podcast series Staying With The Trouble. Populism, race, sexuality, environment, migration, disability, these are just some of the issues we address in relation to church and society. In every episode of Staying With The Trouble, we do that by meeting an expert in the field who has a story to tell, someone who's lived through and faced the challenge of the trouble they're addressing. And so together, we think more deeply about the present time and look for new paths to take us forward. My name is Tim Howells. Uh, And I'm Chris Baker. And we're bringing you these podcasts from the William Temple Foundation, a public theology think tank founded in memory of Archbishop William Temple. His vision laid the foundations of the post-war welfare state, and his work continues to prompt questions about the sort of society we want to build today. Today we're joined by Dr Maria Power, who is, among other things, a Fellow of Blackfriars Hall in Oxford, a research associate of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College, and most importantly, our friend as an honorary senior research fellow at the William Temple Foundation. Maria, welcome to Staying with the Trouble. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Maria, can we begin with the question we ask all our guests, what is the trouble that you are staying with? Um, the trouble I'm staying with is my reading of the role of religion in the troubles in Northern Ireland and in particular, the role that it can play to bring peace. I think a lot of people thought that the troubles were over when the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998. I don't know how many of you remember that photo of um, John Hume and David Trimble having their arms held aloft by Bono in triumph, and everyone really thought it was over. Um, But as recent events have shown, Um, there is still very much the capacity for violence in the region. Uh, Maria, most of our guests who stay with the trouble that they're with, the the experience of childhood and growing up with with their families is one of the key elements that begins them on that path. I'm wondering whether you could say a little bit about your own early history and background and and the extent to which that has shaped your interest in in Northern Ireland and the role of religion in, in in that society. Okay, I was born to Irish parents in London and I would very much describe myself as London Irish. That would be how I would see my my identity. My father's from the southeast of the island um, at a city called Waterford, which is quite, well, was quite a prosperous place. And my mother is from the northwest of the island and she grew up very near the border. And I uh, I have family on both sides of the border. And so I spent my summer holidays as a small child and actually as a teenager as well, going to Ireland to visit family, in particular to see my granny. And um, my Irishness is very much embedded in me to the point where there are certain things I do in an Irish accent. And so whilst I'm not entirely of Ireland, I do feel a very strong affinity with Ireland. Um, But I feel that the fact that I was brought up in London gives me that critical distance to say things that perhaps you couldn't say if you were living in the in the kind of midst of um of like an urban area in in belfast or Derry or somewhere like that i'm also understanding that you know you had quite visceral experiences as, as a young girl growing up when you visited your grandparents farm you know of the troubles and, and could you say a bit about that yeah so i thought it was perfectly normal 
to have to go through an army checkpoint to visit my grandmother. So my granny lived on the south, the southern side of the border, but we'd always stay with the family in the north. And so I, I did believe that it was normal to see checkpoints, to have the fear of being ambushed as you were driving along and to have to explain yourself to men with guns just to go and visit granny or go to granddad's grave. And one of my earliest memories is, and um, we're, we're just coming up to the anniversary now, the 40th anniversary of Bobby Sands' death. And we were in Ireland uh, during the hunger strikes at the, the very height of the hunger strikes. And um, I just remember the fear that people had and I remember we were driving along and I could see the black flags and my mum was trying to explain to me why there were black flags on the lampposts because these men were on hunger strike and then she was trying to explain hunger strike and she was trying to bring Gandhi into it as a way of explaining non-violence to me as a four-year-old. Um, we used to have to hide the car round the back of the house because it had an English registration plate and we were worried about gunmen. So Maria, moving forward a little in time, where were you during the events and the eventual signing of the Good Friday Agreement and how? what were your memories of that? So um, my grandmother died in 1999, so we spent most of the late 90s flying back and forth to visit her and um, it just so happened that we were in Northern Ireland on the day the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And so I was sitting in the waiting lounge by the gate, waiting to get my British Midland flight to Belfast. And suddenly I looked up and Jeremy Paxman was sitting next to me. And there were a few other kind of journalists I recognised. And then when we got to Belfast, we realised that something very big was happening. And um, so I don't, people probably won't remember, but it's one of the things I really vividly remember was there was about three foot of snow on the ground and we were sitting like literally freezing in my aunt, my uncle's house all around the telly and just the joy when we heard the announcement that the agreement had been signed and that they'd finally got there because we knew they'd been up all night and we knew there were things kind of um, going wrong um, and it was everyone was just really happy and full of full of kind of joy. And that actually lasted for a few months. Now, take us then, Maria, if you would, from those personal reminiscences to your future academic career. How did the events of the Good Friday Agreement inspire you into an academic perspective on the matter? So this was all about timing and being in the right place at the right time. Um, I was doing my MA at the time and I was trying to decide on a thesis topic and I had originally planned to do something on the British Labour Party and then I thought well actually no I've got all this research material so I ended up writing my MA thesis on the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland and on the the kind of rhetoric around non-violence that led led to the the kind of signing of the agreement and the bringing of the men of arms into into the dialogue and then I was asked to stay on and do a PhD and I I wanted to see if if an alternative narrative around the role of the churches and the troubles could be constructed and it turned out it could but this was quite countercultural because the dominant narrative was that religion had caused the conflict. So Maria just picking up on that 
on your thesis. I, I suppose it's it's strange that you know for some people looking at Northern Ireland to think that um, religion wouldn't inevitably lead to violence. So what what was the counter narrative that you were trying to sort of develop in your in your thesis? So in the um, in the seventies, the IRA. Um, the provisional IRA, should I say, had come out and said, we are fighting a just war. They had deliberately used um, the uh, Thomas Aquinas's conditions for a just war and said, we are fighting a just war. Um, and so it was popularly believed that um, religion was the cause of the violence. And what the counter narrative I was trying to um to put across was that um, actually no religion hasn't been the cause of violence it may have contributed to it but actually it's been a, a very strong force for peace in in Northern Ireland um, and you only have to kind of google things like the peace people and other organizations like that and you'll see that these people are actually praying on the streets and so it's a very very public performance of religion a very, very public performance of a peaceful religion uh, that's been trying to put forward. And even before the troubles started, um, the uh, there were organisations like Corrie Mila who were trying to put forward this kind of counter-narrative which said, no, Christianity is a religion of peace. You can't use its tenets to justify this kind of violence. Um, and, you know, we are mandated through the gospel to um, live in harmony with one another. So let's drill down a little bit, Maria, if we may. Could you give us some examples of these voices? I'm particularly interested in the extent to which their voices were known in the communities themselves. Yeah, so a lot of these people would have been very known within their own local communities, but not known nationally or um, within the region. So uh, the most famous of which would have been the Corrymeela community, which is one of those ones that have everyone's heard of. But I think, to me, the most remarkable groups were these five organisations called um, that I called Peaceline Ecumenical Communities that were very small groups of people who, who worked within a very clearly defined geographical area that had suffered a great deal of violence. And they would actually live together, pray together, um, and dialogue and serve the community to act as a kind of an, an ironic witness to the community um, and to say that there is another there is another way of living. Um, so these would be deliberately cross community. You would have Protestants and Catholics living together in the same house. They would pray together. If um, if someone was killed in the local area a Protestant and a Catholic would go to the house to offer their condolences. Uh, they would go to funerals um, and they would organise acts of witness. And this was actually very dangerous work for them. So a couple of years ago, I, I met a couple of people in Canada who had come over from Canada to do this work. And they were telling me about how they'd had bricks and bottles thrown at them when they were trying to do a prayer walk in, in the 1980s. So it was quite perilous for them. Um, but it is evident that they were very much accepted in the local community. They soon became spokespersons for the local community and they did actually kind of calm things down. So in the recent riots, um, there are examples of, of these kind of people uh, going out and trying to, to kind of stop the rioting. 
um, and and communicating across the divide, as it were, to to try and calm things down. So these stories were known locally; they were impactful locally, and yet they didn't seem to be reflected in the dominant media narrative, might we say? Why that dislocation? I'd say probably because it doesn't sell papers. It's not exciting. Fix it. You know, they did little things like fixing children's bikes and um, holding coffee mornings for young mothers. That's not really exciting compared to a hotel being blown up. Small local acts of cooperation and generosity. But how do those relate, Maria, to the political processes that were necessary, that were visible and that had to happen? Well, I don't I don't actually think it's an either or. It's a both and. I think if you're going to have peace in a society, everybody has to buy into it. Um, and I think it very much depends upon your definition of peace. Um, if people argue that peace is just the men of violence have put down their guns, but still could pick them up again if there's something they don't like, then, of course, the political process is all that really counts. But as I kind of developed as a, an academic and developed intellectually, I, ca- I came to realise that peace is so much more than just the absence of violence. It's about um, actually having stable relationships within local communities and having um, having kind of things like socioeconomic inequality, um, nice urban spaces for children to play in, so that people actually feel as though they're part of a society um, and feel that they're part of a community and they want to buy into that rather than just the peace process being something that's over there, which is very much what the political peace process was. It was very much something hierarchical. It was mostly men. Um, only The only women there really were the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition and they were the ones that brought in the local level peace building ideas. Is there something about academic thought, Maria, that has to think in terms of those top down structures? And is that something you felt you were challenging? Yes, um, very much so. There was um, the the field was very much dominated um, by political scientists who were mostly men um, who didn't buy into this idea of positive peace, who didn't buy into the idea that structural violence had actually caused the conflict in the first place and that if if you didn't overcome the structural violence the threat of conflict would always be there. So there was actually a a kind of a great deal of resistance to this, um, to my ideas. So in my PhD Viva the the external examiner opened with well how can you defend this which isn't the way I would open a PhD Viva but that's that's another conversation. (laughs) Yes! But he went on to be very supportive to me later in my career. So, you know, um, but it... it so what was, it, I, it, can I just come in there and say, ask, you know, what was, what was the thinking from these academics about what was causing the violence if it wasn't structural? Was, was, did they just look at it purely from, a, you know, the position of ideology yeah. or, or what? Yeah, that, that's the best way of putting it. They looked at it as these are two warring ideologies who have now been brought to a compromise so that's enough and 
as Pope Francis said in his um, recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti, compromise is actually very damaging because people do feel as though they've lost out and people don't feel as though they've been winners. So it was like a lose-lose situation everyone was in with the Good Friday Agreement. And we see that now with the way that the, the, the institutions are operating. Those institutions are... I, won't, I wouldn't go as far as to say that Northern Ireland's a failed state, but they're operating on cronyism. And most of the things that need to be done, like, um, you know, the things that you need in a local community, um, like urban regeneration, are having to be done by local people at great personal costs to them. I'd just like to sort of direct the, the attention now more towards the people that you're influencing your thinking um, and, I, and I guess one man who was certainly saw the kind of whole picture in terms of structural violence and so on and so forth, who was a great influence on you, uh, was Cardinal Cahill Daly. Um, I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about who he was in that particular context and what was his influence on your thinking and development? So um, I first met Cardinal Cahill Daly when I was 22 and in the first year of my PhD. Daly was, at that time, the retired Archbishop of Armagh, and he was obviously a cardinal. Um, so he was the sort of titular head of um, Catholicism in Ireland. He had been one of the theological advisors at Vatican II, and he had been the only Catholic bishop to serve throughout the Troubles in Northern Ireland. He himself had been burnt out of his home by the IRA as a young child, so he knew what it was like to experience direct violence. And because he was trained as a philosopher, he did his, his PhD on Tertullian, he had a way of seeing the big picture of what was needed in Northern Ireland. So he knew that we needed the political reform, that we needed self-determination, that we needed de devolved structures for the, the country to run politically. But he also could see that the socioeconomic deprivation um, you know, the, the squalor that people were having to live in, the fact that the police were armed, there, were arm, there was army on the streets, was actually destroying the chance of those devolved organisations, uh, those devolved institutions working. Um, because he, he knew that all of society had to work together to ensure that the peace was lasting, rather than this just kind of this sort of twilight zone that we're living in at the moment where we get these these eruptions of violence and um i met him quite a few times he had this he had this wonderful open door policy towards me so whenever i was there i would always take whenever i was um home doing doing interviews and stuff i'd always take an afternoon and go and have a chat with him and talk to him about my ideas and it was never like i was sitting at the feet of greatness he had so much humility that he always made me feel like I was his equal. And I think that was because he kind of, he agreed with what I was saying. So after he passed away, very sadly, I was asked to write the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry for him. And I discovered that he had left behind eight volumes of his writings on the conflict in Northern Ireland. So I, I, I took my mum with me to the library and me and my mum just um, sat and kind of did all the did the research in a week, kind of got the copies of everything we needed. And reading his work, reading work that has been so 
carefully crafted and so forensically argued really fortified my belief that now that we've got this kind of peace where there's no more violence, we now do need to move on to dealing with the structural issues that caused the conflict in the first place. So the work I'm doing now really is a kind of homage to his his thinking and trying to kind of carry on his legacy. Well, it's a lovely picture you're painting there, Maria, both of you sort of sitting, you know, as a kind of equal with, with the Cardinal himself, but then this image of you and your mum kind of ferreting away in his eight volumes of, of archives that this, this precious resource that, you know, you'd come across. Um, was there one particular piece of, you know, archive that stood out for you and you said, yeah, wow, this really does sort of encapsulate the whole thing thing for me? Yes, there was a sermon he wrote where he talked about the moral injury that killing does to people. And it was in that moment that I realised that he didn't actually judge anyone because he was talking about how the IRA or the loyalist terrorists um, or the INLA were actually being destroyed by their own actions. And you could see, you could almost feel the pain that this was causing him coming off the page because, you know, he he was, to him, this was a life wasted. Um, Not only were the people that were being killed being destroyed, but the people that were doing the killing that were being destroyed as well. And and that to me was really important. That was um, a moment where I realised that actually you do, you have to, everybody is involved. You have to feel sympathy and empathy for everyone and everyone's voice needs to be heard. Cardinal Daly died in 2009. Here we are today in 2021. And as we know, we've seen over recent weeks Uh, some of the worst street violence for years, sporadic rioting in towns and cities that has taken place, I think, since the end of March. Maria, what's your understanding of this current situation? And in particular, what has been the role of the church, positive or otherwise? So my take on this is that um, there there are two forces at play here. I think... And the thing that really breaks my heart is that I am seeing 12-year-olds rioting and throwing petrol bombs and burning buses because they realise that their lives are going nowhere, that they don't have the same opportunities that other people have. So when the Good Friday Agreement was signed back in the 90s, everyone was promised a peace dividend. The economy would spark up, there would be jobs, people wouldn't have to emigrate, people's lives would improve. And while that's been the case for quite a few people, so for example, Game of Thrones is filmed over there, you've got Line of Duty and things like that, there are a large proportion of people, particularly in the loyalist community, who have been left behind. Um, And so, you know, they then become susceptible to terrorism, organised crime, extremism. And I I tweeted when I I wrote an article the other week where I was I was writing about levels of deprivation in Northern Ireland. And it occurred to me that I wrote exactly the same thing 10 years ago. Nothing has changed. Levels of deprivation are still the same. Levels of educational attainment, while on paper they look very good, 
there are still a substantial proportion of the working class being left behind. So these um, are once again failures of this structural generosity, yeah. if you like, aren't they? Yeah. Perhaps with Westminster being guilty or perhaps even Brexit issues being responsible to some degree. But can we go back to these small local acts of generosity that you spoke about in previous decades? To what degree are they still flourishing and is there hope there? Well, there is hope. Um, because they are what's keeping the communities going. Um, and to a large extent, it's the women within the communities that are, are kind of keeping them going, ensuring that children stay in school, ensuring that there's literacy, um, ensuring that the older members of the community are, are looked after, um, and ensuring that their voice, the voices of these communities are actually heard in Westminster and in Stormont. I know that... Uh, Brexit has caused massive problems because it has really brought into play the um, the notion of the border. And it was after 1998, it became very easy to forget there was a border. So I'd be visiting friends and I'd be like, oh, are we in the south now? It was literally like that. Whereas before you would be able to know by the quality of the road um, and by the checkpoints, obviously. Um, but... Now I'm hearing about border checkpoints. There's conversations that there's going to be a border poll, which is, is really destabilising for people, even if it doesn't happen, because their identity is so embedded with being part of, of, of the United Kingdom. And that's been threatened. And Westminster, in the shape of, of this Conservative government, have basically turned around and said, well, you are expendable. So these are the facts on the ground at the moment, we think. But uh, thinking again about ideas and about religion we have available don't we within uh, the christian tradition within catholic social teaching concepts like solidarity concepts like subsidiarity how might those begin to be leveraged to support this delicate contemporary moment the people of faith in the middle classes real have to realize that they need to stand in solidarity with the working classes they can't ignore this anymore um, because you know, if you want to put it on the most basic level, it is going to affect them. But I also think um, that um, local communities need to have more uh, say in the way in which Stormont is run. Um, now, we saw during the riots that the churches, the local churches were very active in coming out and kind of begging people not to be, um, not to engage in the violence and especially the young children. But um, the churches can provide leadership in this because in many ways um, it, the priests and the, the kind of parsons or pastors, they don't have the, the kind of authority that they once had. But as organisations, they have the structures um, to allow lay people to have these conversations amongst themselves to decide what they want to do and then to, devo and then to voice this in, in, in quite a magnified way. So what I hear you saying, Maria, is a kind of um, a new form of leadership that the churches have got to try and develop in order to kind of compensate for this uh, lack of clout that they used to have in, 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 in society. Can you say a little bit more about what, you know, have you a sense of what those alternative forms of leadership might look like on the ground, as it were? I think it, it's very much going to have to be in, especially within the Catholic Church, an enactment of the Second Vatican Council and the role of the laity. 
So the laity have to realise that the church isn't something over there, as it were. The church isn't the bishops and the priests, that they are, in effect, part of the church. But can, um, I, ask, can I ask, just follow that up and say, so what, what is, is there something stopping the laity feeling that and doing that at the moment? A lot of it is a lack of religious education. They don't realise that that's actually their role um, to do things. It's not, while it's very nice to see the, the um, statements coming out from the four church leaders, it's not up to them to be making political points. It's up to the laity to be bringing their faith into their everyday life and to be reading the situation through the lens of their faith. Now, the churches can help through this with this um, by actually doing more within local parishes to help people and to have have conversations in, in kind of cell groups, as it were, like they did in in Latin America in the 1970s. I think that would be the way forward. And that's that's the kind of project I'm working on at the moment, looking at the way parishes can act in solidarity with local communities to, to talk about urban regeneration and to give local people a voice. That, that sounds really, really exciting. And I love the idea of a kind of liberation theology emerging out of, out of Northern Ireland. And I'm just wondering whether yeah. that leads on nicely to just thinking of the other areas of work that are developing out of, you know, your research, um, you know, around structural violence, for example, and, and the kind of analogies, you know, that you're making perhaps with with what's going on in the States. You've mentioned it before, but can you say a little bit more about how where your work is currently going? Um, so obviously I'm, I'm kind of working on ideas around urban regeneration in uh, Northern Ireland, but when uh, the capital was stormed in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January, I had quite a few um, calls and emails from uh, U.S. journalists asking me what Northern Ireland could teach the U.S. about like polarisation and division. And as I was talking it through with them, I realised that there was quite a bit that could be talked about in terms of dealing with structures and doing the initial kind of dialogue um, that um, needed to be done before you could deal with structural violence. So one of the things I, I'm kind of looking at, kind of skating around it at the moment, is um, looking looking at this idea of how we can learn from the lessons of Northern Ireland in dealing with polarization in all its forms in in the US that's not very far along because we kind of stopped when we realized it would be a bit embarrassing with the riots people saying well look at northern ireland isn't it doing well and there's buses burning um but it's it's something i i'm kind of picking up working with with evangelical christians um in it, particularly on the east coast and is that because you can see there's parallels between their experience as white evangelical Christians in the States and the experience of, of the loyal, loyalist community in, in Northern Ireland? Yes, I think there's two things here. There's the biblical interpretation, uh, because the Bible has been used um, as a means of, of stoking conflict, and, and that's that's definitely been used in the US. But there's also the alienation and the disenfranchisement that we're seeing, because you know, whenever you try to get an American to explain Trump, they'll say, well, he was speaking to people that weren't listened to. And he was speaking to people that nobody ever spoke to before. And um, that, in a way, to me, is an analogy with loyalists, because I feel as they feel as though they're shouting in the wilderness at the moment. Um, and that, that, in a way, is true. Um, and so that alienation and disenfranchisement is something that they both have in common. So I think... It's not so much what we can learn from Northern Ireland, 
what the US can learn from Northern Ireland, it's what they can learn from each other. Maria, you're in the middle of this work. There's a lot of work to go forward, but we can also look back at uh, the personal story you've just given us. Can we conclude then with asking you what what has been the cost for you personally in staying with this trouble over some years now? Well, I think um, in terms of my career, because I didn't take the easy route and write the easy kind of high level political stuff, it it probably it's probably sounding a bit strange because I work at an Oxford college, but it, it held my career up quite a bit. But it, emotionally, it was very draining. It's very draining to and very damaging in a kind of moral way to listen to these stories and to see the hurt in people's eyes and to have people sobbing while you're interviewing them and that's kind of taken that's had an effect on my mental health um, and caused me quite a great deal of anxiety but to be honest at the end of the day I, I kind of feel it's it's worth it because it, it means that these, these people's stories are heard and um, they actually people who wouldn't have previously had a voice have been given one. Well that's a great insight into what the costs the costs of academic research can indeed be. So thank you for your insightful and topical conversation today. I know as you have a recent book just published, do you want to mention that as we draw to a close? So I've just published a book called Catholic Social Teaching and Theologies of Peace in Northern Ireland, which has been published by Routledge. Thank you, Maria. Uh, Thank you as well to Chris Baker, my co-host, and to Rosie Dawson, producer of the series. And thank you as well to all of you for listening. You can access this and all other episodes of Staying With The Trouble at williamtemplefoundation.org.uk or from iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. See you again soon. Bye bye.